You're listening to On Human Rights, where we talk to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law. We're broadcasting from the Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Loon, Sweden. I'm Gabriel Stein. Philip Tamingis is the director of the International Bar Association's Human Rights Institute. He joins us today from London to talk about a new report he co-edited on the role of the Universal Periodic Review in advancing human rights in the administration of justice. Philip, thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you, Gabriel. What's the Universal Periodic Review? Uh, the Universal Periodic Review is a relatively new uh, process in uh, the United Nations human rights system. And basically in it, the uh, UN member states are uh, periodically uh, reviewed um, with respect to their uh, human rights record. Uh, in regard to that, um, other states can make comments and recommendations, and so can uh, members of civil society, NGOs, etc. Um, and in that regard, it's a significant um, uh, advance <clears throat> on human rights implementation through the UN in that it does open up these UN processes to non-state actors. Uh, it is, of course, still largely dominated by the states, but not entirely so. Um, and uh, we think this is a big step forward. And one of the reasons why we wrote this report was we wanted to see the extent to which there was input from the non-state actors who are related to the legal profession. And what did you find? Well, we did a, a very extensive survey. We uh, looked Firstly, at the recommendations that were coming out of the Universal Periodic Review, um, what happens is when a state is reviewed, then uh, several recommendations are made to it in order to help it improve uh, its human rights situation. And uh, we studied recommendations from 2008 to 2014, over 38,000 recommendations to uh, see the extent to which these related to the administration of justice and in particular uh, the input of lawyers, judges and prosecutors and the concerns that lawyers, judges and prosecutors have uh, in carrying out their work. And uh, we found that this occurred in less than 3% of, uh, of the recommendations. Um, if, if you want the figures, I can, I can tell you that out of 38,000 recommendations, only 72 address the issue of the independence of lawyers. Only 126 address the independence of prosecutors and uh, approximately 1,000 out of 38,000 address the issue of the independence of judges. So there was, we found a great under-representation of a significant uh, stakeholder in human rights delivery, both internationally and domestically. 
And when you talk about independence, what are you referring to? Uh, we're referring, for example, um, to uh, with respect to the independence of judges, the the fact that they are able to bring down judgments without the government, for example, uh, putting pressure on them to make a decision in a case one way or the other, um, or. Uh, putting pressure on them by not giving them proper tenure, not giving them proper financing so that the courts are independent of the executive arm and the legislative arm of the government. With respect to lawyers, it can be cases, some of which we've seen quite recently, actually, of lawyers being identified with the issues that they are going to court uh, on behalf of their clients. And, and so if you're defending uh, somebody who is um, a- alleged to be a criminal, um, being regarded yourself as the lawyer as a criminal yourself and being treated accordingly. So it's essential for the uh, delivery of, uh, of justice that uh, judges and lawyers and prosecutors as well have this level of independence. And when you look at the 40,000 recommendations and you see that only 3% relate to independence, you feel like that is vastly um, – uh, you're, you're thinking there that it's underreported, underdiscussed, an issue not looked into – Yes, yes, exactly, because uh, it's the lawyers, the judges and the prosecutors who in fact are responsible principally for the delivery and the implementation of human rights domestically. Unless you have this, all you've got really with human rights are a lot of high-sounding phrases in international treaties which in fact don't mean anything, that, that are just window dressing. And so in order to ensure implementation of these where it matters, you have got to have a properly functioning legal system and independent actors within that system to, uh, to ensure this delivery. And uh, because the UPR deals with human rights, uh, we find it astonishing and something that needs to be addressed that so little attention is paid to this significant sector of people who uh, can contribute to the implementation of human rights. And we found that this occurs um, at all levels. We found that there is very little input from lawyers or from bar associations with respect to feeding into the UPR system uh, ideas, findings, reports, running side events in Geneva when the UPR is going on. Uh, we find that, that when, as we've seen with the resolutions or the recommendations, when the recommendations are made, less than 3% address the, the specific issues relating to the legal profession. And we've also found that after the recommendations have been made, um, the, the legal profession is not used very much at all with respect to implementing those recommendations. And so, again, we have the high-sounding phrases which, which go nowhere. 
So your report made a number of recommendations to four sets of groups uh, involved in the process, and I wonder if we should look at each one real quickly and, and go over some of the recommendations. Sure. Mm-hmm. First, uh, if we take the key recommendations for states under review. So with respect to, re- to states under review, um, the uh, main recommendations are that uh, there should be a greater use of existing uh, United Nations instruments and principles and, and to use these as benchmarks for uh, the standards of delivery of justice. For example, not only uh, do we have the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, for example, but there are a number of UN instruments such as the basic principles on the independence of the judiciary, the basic principles on the role of lawyers and the guidelines on the role of prosecutors, which are hardly ever referred to in the recommendations. And so uh, one of our recommendations to the states being reviewed is that they pay greater attention uh, to these existing instruments which set standards which can be used as uh, as benchmarks um, to uh, to self-assess if you like uh, their own uh, uh, standards and um, and actions what if we looked at why don't we say the top recommendation or one of the what you think is one of the most important recommendations to, to the recommending states at the universal periodic review uh, with respect to the states making the recommendations, um, we found that uh, they, they should pay specific attention to information coming from their, the, the lawyers' associations within their own countries. We find that there's very, very little reliance on this. Uh, again, they should be referring to the UN basic principles and guidelines that I've mentioned before. Um, but in particular, what we call for in, in those recommendations is that we call for the administration of justice to be transparent and accessible and representative uh, of the population that is, uh, that is supposed to serve. Recommendations like this are very rarely made. One of the things that we found with respect to the recommendations that were made and that did in fact refer to our concerns about the legal profession was that they were very vague. They, they referred to what the states ought to do. For example, increase judicial independence, but they don't say how to do it. Um, they, they don't say whether what is needed is greater financing, uh, whether it's the government to back off, whether uh, it, it's greater training uh, for the profession, how this training is going to be done and so on. The, the, con- the uh, concentration is on the what rather than on the how to achieve um, the aims set out in the recommendations. And so our other um, uh, call to the recommending states is to make recommendations that are specific and uh, that, that are action-oriented. Mm, that makes sense. How about for the United Nations Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner? You had a few recommendations as well for them. Uh, yes, we said that the uh, we recommended that the office of the High Commissioner should uh, disseminate 
a set of indicators that are called the United Nations Rule of Law Indicators um, because these may assist states and NGOs in monitoring human rights uh, in the administration of justice. Um, And uh, we also recommended that it foster the use of reporting guidelines um, at the UPR by particularly NGOs, um, a lot of whom are represented in this process but, but could be more so. And in particular, what could be more represented are bar associations. Right. And finally, you turned uh, the tables on yourself and you made recommendations to lawyers and lawyers associations. Yes, indeed. We found here that part of the problem, um, really two problems relating to the ability of lawyers and law associations to participate in this process, were firstly a lack of knowledge. Overwhelmingly, lawyers are incredibly ignorant about the universal periodic review, the process, how they can put input into it and so forth. And secondly, we found also it's a resourcing issue that many bar associations are so busy with other domestic concerns that they just don't have the time, the resources and the personnel to be able to do very much. Again, our specific recommendations to lawyers and and bar associations was, again, the greater reliance on the UN basic principles that I referred to before. And also, in addition to that, to look at the recommendations that come out of the special rapporteur on the independence of judges and lawyers, um, because she uh, makes a lot of recommendations in this regard, which again can be used as benchmarks. And we said that if they could, bar associations should take a much greater part in the UPR process and that maybe there should be a fostering of exchanges of, of knowledge, of issues, of cases and so on between national bar associations and also with the judiciary. It's, it sounds to me like there's a gap um, between people who are involved in the UPR process and the lawyers, the people on the ground. I wonder, uh, in your recommendations, I mean, do you, do you have suggestions for how to narrow that gap? Uh, it's, I suppose, uh, very largely a matter of education. Uh, as I mentioned uh, before, uh, most lawyers are ignorant to an almost profound extent um, about the UPR and what it does and what the processes are, uh, the very first step, we think, is is to make people aware um, of, uh, of what the process involves and how, uh, as lawyers, as bar associations, as members of NGOs, of civil society generally, we can all contribute um, and have a meaningful contribution to this process. Does the whole universal periodic review process work at all to help improve the working conditions for the legal profession today? No, the the uh, main way in which it is designed to do this is to make recommendations, but it, it's not a court. It doesn't make binding judgments, uh, which it can then enforce. Um, they are called recommendations because they are exactly that, they're recommendatory. And so it is up to the states under review to take on board those recommendations and to uh, to implement them. 
And that is why one of the things that we found in the report um, was that the, the, the level of implementation of the recommendations was, was very low, um, that in fact we could find no information um, about the implementation of about 40% of the recommendations and a very significant omission in this regard was the fact that no recommendations at all that dealt with corruption had ever been implemented. Wow. At all. Wow. So that is really significant. That's amazing. So you have 40% of of these recommendations um, falling on deaf ears. To a large extent, it would appear so. I mean, it... uh, in our monitoring, we could find no information on this in 40% of the cases. Now, uh, we have to admit that when you're dealing with surveys and statistics, you've got to regard them as guidelines, as indicators rather than as definitive. Um, as as uh, Mark Twain once famously said, there are three kinds of lies, lies, damned lies and statistics. And uh, here we're dealing with statistics. Mm-hmm. But what these statistics do show is that this enormous disparity um, does indicate that there is a strong presumption that something could be improved. And, and what impact does this have to you and me uh, as citizens in, in the protection of our human rights? Well, ultimately, what it means is that human rights as they are delivered on the ground in our respective countries should be improved because the process of UPR is to look at what's going right. It's, it's not just all negative. It looks at what's going right, but also what's going wrong. And instead of just waving a big stick and saying you must improve, making recommendations about how uh, and, and in what areas you should improve. What we are saying is, is that in that regard, in, in the level of the recommendations, they don't refer enough to the main actors who could help this implementation on the ground, namely the members of the legal profession. I asked a few of our uh, staff here if they had any questions, and uh, one of our uh, human rights professors wanted me to ask this, so I'm mm-hmm. going to do her the favor. Right. What do you, she wanted me to ask you what you think is more important, the process or the outcome of the Universal Periodic Review? Uh, Well, they're both important because the process directly affects the outcome. If I had to make a choice, I would say the outcome. I think the practical uh, implementation and the results of it um, are ultimately what human rights are all about. Otherwise, you could say, well, part of the process is making treaties, part of the process is the discussion that goes on in UPR, etc. That's important, but it's, it has to be important for the outcomes. So, as I said, they're both important, but if I had to choose one or the other, I'd say outcomes. Philip Tamingis is the director of the International Bar Association's Human Rights Institute, and he joined us today from London. Philip, thank you so much for taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you, Gabriel. On Human Rights is broadcast from the Rao Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Lund, Sweden. 
I'm Gabriel Stein. Thanks so much for listening today. We'll be back soon with more talking to experts around the world about the latest and most important issues on human rights and humanitarian law.